again, thank you for being with us at Grace Community. It's a, it's a great time for us to begin to get into the Christmas spirit. If you haven't already done that, we're one church meeting in two locations, four different services, three right here, and uh, we're glad that you're with us. We've, uh, we've been doing the You've Been Gifted cards, and what we're trying to do with that is really blanket our entire area with random acts of generosity uh, by just giving somebody a gift that they didn't expect and also handing them a card that basically just reminds them what Christmas is all about and God's love for them. And I'd like to share a few stories with you if that's all right, okay? Um, I know some people have uh, wrapped up gifts and just with the card, put the card on it and left them for people anonymously. Um, I, I know Jack in Paulding, he went to the local a grocery store called Chiefs, and he went there and handed out $10 bills with one of those You've Been Gifted cards, and uh, that was kind of a neat idea, and he got all kinds of reactions. Some people were, he reacted with tears, some gave him hugs, some just asked him why, and just a neat opportunity there. We also got an email that I just saw this morning, uh, one of our own from our own church family named Chris. Uh, she was having kind of a rough day. And uh, had a lot of things to do. She left the house uh, with a whole bunch of tasks on her list to take care of. And, and realized she had forgotten to eat supper. And so she stopped at Five Guys for a cheeseburger. That's a good place to go for a cheeseburger. But she stopped at Five Guys. And, uh, and she was there getting ready to pay. Well, there was a, a couple in front of her. And they quickly stepped in front of her before she could pay with a credit card and paid for her bill. And turned and handed her a You've Been Gifted card. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, they talked about, hey, I go to that church too, you know, and they talked about grace and, and what are the odds because that, uh, uh, that, that uh, Five Guys was quite a ways from here. And uh, so they just kind of got a, a good laugh out of that. And uh, as they were talking about, one of the things that, that Chris shared in the email that she didn't share with the couple that, that had done that is that she was having a rough day and how much it meant to her. That, uh, that expression of God's love. She says just what she needed to hear at that point in her day. So just a, a lot of great stories. I, I was at Arby's. I bought lunch for some guys there. Zach was with me, and Zach told me afterwards, you need to work on your form, Dad. So, you know, we, we, you know it's different. I hope that's working for you. We, we just really want to share God's love with other people, and it's a fun way to do it. If you have a story that you'd like to share, you can go to our website, and share that with us. We, we'd like to tell a few stories every Sunday. But it's just, it's just fun stuff. And I'm so proud of Grace and how you respond generously to the community. Um, really, we as believers should be the most generous people on the planet because we have received the greatest gift, the gift of God. We're, as I say, we have a series called You've Been Gifted. And it'll take us right up through Christmas, and we're glad you're here for it. It's really a chance for us to focus on the real meaning of Christmas rather than the kind of rampant commercialism that happens all around us at Christmas time. But uh, we, want, we want you to focus on, on what Christmas is really all about. And in light of that, I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, it's a pretty familiar Christmas story, and uh, I want us to look at that. And it starts in verse 1. Matthew says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, 
Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this was what has been written by the prophet. And then they quote that. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time that the star appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the Christ child was, where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell, down, fell to the ground and worshipped him. And then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So this is uh, the story of Christmas that's familiar to us. A lot of us, maybe it's even more familiar to you because of the song, We Three Kings of Glory. You don't want me to sing that, but, you know, so, so we, this is a familiar sound. And we actually, even though the song says, We Three Kings, these magi, these wise men, we don't really know how many. Tradition says three, but that probably is because these men brought three different types of gifts. Scholars really believe there were probably several more than three of these uh, dignitaries that came from the east to seek out the one who had been born king. And it's, it's kind of an amazing thing because this is the first Christmas. And it's something that we now celebrate all over the world. Christmas represents God's greatest gift to humanity, the gift of his son. And now all over the world, 2,000 years later, whether people believe in Jesus or not, or whether they believe in God or not, people all over our planet celebrate the coming of Christ by giving gifts to each other. This, this event is so significant it's impacted our entire world. And, and they exchange gifts, really, because of God's greatest gift. It's interesting to me, and what we're going to look at in a little more detail, are the three gifts. Because the three gifts were unusual, even in that time. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You see, gold was really the gift of a king. It was the most precious, like today... The most precious metal, maybe not today, but, you know, that they had then. And that, that was a kingly gift. And that was unusual, kind of strange, because they're presenting this gift to a peasant boy in Jerusalem. And then frankincense, is a, it was an incense that was used in the temple to worship God, used by priests. And then myrrh was used for different things, but primarily it was used to embalm people. 
at their death. For example, we know from Scripture that Jesus, after he was taken down from the cross, was uh, placed myrrh on him to, to preserve him, preserve him that way. And so as we look at these three gifts, I think the reason that there are three gifts is because they really reflect something about God. And God's gift is so amazing that one gift back doesn't really do that justice. And so we have these three aspects, a kingly gift, a priestly gift, a sacrificial gift. And I want to start by talking about the first gift that's mentioned, gold, and that that was really a gift for a king. I don't know if you could imagine how it would be when this caravan arrives from the east and a big contingent, you know, uh, they, they brought, they came in. It would have caused a huge stir in Jerusalem, a bustling capital city of Israel. And as they came in, no doubt that that created quite a ruckus. And, and Herod, who, who this Herod is Herod the Great in history, and uh, no doubt he heard about them and, and their arrival. And then they start asking about the king of the Jews. And, and they're directed, no doubt, Herod then, they, they seek out an audience with Herod. And, and if you could just imagine how this would be for Herod. Oh, they're, they're coming. They're loaded down with treasure. And they're looking for the king of the Jews. And, and when he granted them an audience, you know, I could just imagine, you know, that that. Herod is dressed in his finest robes, right? And he goes out to meet these dignitaries. And they say, hey, we're looking for the king of the Jews. And I'm sure, you know, he's kind of smiling. And he sees that they've brought a bunch of stuff. And they're kind of loaded down with gold. And he's probably saying, well, you're looking for the king of the Jews? Well, speaking, you know, how can I help you? You know, and then, and then they're like, oh, Oh, no, we're, we're not looking for you. No, we're not looking for a king of a, a province or a city or even a country. We're looking for a king that will be worshipped throughout all kingdoms. A king that we will worship now from here all the way back to Chaldea. That kind of a king. Now, at this point, if you know anything about Herod, and I'm guessing his eyes kind of narrowed at that point. His heart started beating maybe a little faster, maybe a little adrenaline rush as his, he sees his throne being threatened. We know from history that Herod the Great was not a nice man. Uh, Josephus, a non-Christian historian, tells us that he was married to several women. His favorite wife was a lady named Miriam. He loved her the most of any of his wives, but he didn't trust her and he had her killed. And Miriam's mom. His, his three of his favorite sons were born by Miriam. He actually had his two oldest go to Rome and to, to get the finest education in the world that was available at the time. And then when they came of age as, as older teenagers and they came back to Jerusalem to be with their father, he, he sort of didn't trust them and he had both of them killed. He actually had a third son by Miriam who, who on his deathbed when Herod knew he was going to die... He didn't trust another son and had him killed. He had two brothers-in-law killed. You know, the guy was just kind of brutal. And, and we know that didn't just stop that way. Even in the pages of Scripture, some things, you know, are written. We know from the story that Herod kind of tells the wise men, hey, tell, when you find him, let me know so I could worship him. But really, he doesn't want to worship 
And when he realizes he's been tricked, he, he sends men into Bethlehem and they kill all the male children two years and under. That, that's just kind of typical of Herod. That's why when it says Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him, because they knew, you know, how he was. You see, we might be a little surprised at that t- today. You know, why would Herod react that way? Really, it's part of who he was. And the, real, the reason is this. Some people long for the coming of the true king. But some people fear the coming of the true king. And both groups do that for a reason. And let me explain that to you. First of all, some people long for the coming of the king. There's sort of an analogy in the way it was in ancient times. Because the king would come when he came to part of his realm to visit, it was a big deal. I mean, kings had sole authority. It wasn't like there was no division of political powers like there is today with the judicial system and the legislation. In those times, the king, he ruled absolutely. And if you wanted justice in the land, the king was who provided the justice. And if he was a good king, he would. And when he came to an area, it would be a cause of rejoicing. Because that area would get kind of a makeover in advance of the king coming. As a matter of fact, even the roads, especially the roads that the king traveled on, would be taken care of. They would be rebuilt. Uh, Obstacles that might have been there for generations would be removed to make the road better because the king was coming and and everybody got a facelift and everybody realized with all that 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 there was going to be access like there had never been before. We might kind of wonder, how did the the magi know that the king was coming, that, that he had been born? It's like they were waiting for this event to happen and And it's interesting because we just finished a series in Daniel. And if you'll remember, Daniel lived about 500 years before Christ. And Jerusalem was conquered by Babylon. And Daniel was one of the the young men who were taken the best and brightest out of Jerusalem back to the east to serve the king of the empire, Nebuchadnezzar in that case. And as we remember back on Daniel's life that we just went through, he really served and influenced two world empires, Babylon and the empire of Medo-Persia. He, he served and influenced both of them. Now, when he would have gone there, he, they would have taken their books because they were, they were looking to get the best out of the land. And Daniel would have had access to, to the prophets who lived before him who were talking about the coming of the one true king. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the passages that Daniel would have been familiar with is a passage from um, Isaiah, Isaiah 40. Passages like this. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call her out that her warfare has ended that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And that's actually a good thing. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain hill be made low and let the rough ground become a path and the rugged terrain a broad valley. 
And then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see, in Daniel's day and, and these men that studied after the time of Daniel, these, these magi that have come, they understood that Isaiah was talking about a different kind of king. A king that when he came, mountains would be made low. Valleys would be filled. That's how the roads would be. And what was all that? To make access to the king. They all got that. And that's exactly what we saw happen with the coming of Christ. You see, when a king came to an area, it was usually for two reasons. One was just to visit the empire, to come and just check it out, to see his realm. And what that meant for those people is not over the makeover and all that that I talked about in the improved roads, but really what it meant for them is that they would have direct access to the king. Probably somebody they've never seen before. Maybe a king who's never visited before. Everything's changed. They have direct access. And from them on, they would have a better way. Because the roads and everything would be improved. As a matter of fact, it's the same thing that the Romans did in the first century and before then. We think of, of roads like the Appian Way. We actually have a picture of that. Look how straight that is. That, that's a road built by Rome to, to make access from the coast to the capital city. The king, the coming of the king meant access. It meant the way was clear. The roads were open. They were made straight. Everything was different. We have access to the king. And really, even today, it's kind of like that. Roads are kind of reflective of a condition of a country. I've had the privilege to, to be in, in several countries where you wouldn't expect the roads to be so great. Siberia, uh, Cambodia, Cameroon. But the worst was in the Central African Republic, where you land in Bangui, which is their capital, and there's one, basically one paved road in the entire city, and that's from the capital to down, from the airport to downtown. Even, even the building that houses their, their parliament, their government, 13-story building, but it's on a dirt road. And, and that's, that was just reflective of the trouble that their country was going through and still has been through, as they've still been through a civil war and we're supporting orphans there. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about the hindrances. It's still an issue, but it's very reflective. You know, it was the, the way or the highway. You know, that's what, that's what God's talking about. So as we look at all this waiting for the coming of the king... We, we get that some long for the coming of the king. As a matter of fact, when we talk about this king, look at, look at how Jesus is described in Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities... All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is our king. And some people long for his coming, the one true king, but some people, they fear his coming. Why, why is that? Well, it's because of this. The second reason that kings would typically visit, if, if they weren't just visiting a realm, part of their their kingdom, 
and, and thereby creating access. The second reason that a king would visit would be to put down a revolt or a rebellion. That's why some fear the one true king even today. Because actually the greatest story of, of God in the Bible, it doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. It doesn't start with the Christmas story. It actually starts in the garden at creation where God created man and woman, Adam and Eve. And, and basically he told them, he gave them one restriction but he created them with free will so that they could connect and, and interact and have a connection with God. But when he gave them this one restriction, they, all, they both violated that. They ate of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they weren't supposed to eat from. And, and what was that? It was rebellion. And because of that, all of us have also rebelled against God. Every one of us have. We've all violated God's commands. And because of that, we all deserve judgment. And Scripture's telling us that one day in the future, God will put down all rebellion. All rebellion. Which is bad news for us because all of us fall into that category of rebels. And, and really, that whole rebellion was based on, on, on a single question which was this, who gets to be in charge? That's the question. And who should be in charge is God, our creator. But the way we've all answered that question is who gets to be in charge? I do. I do. And so we do what we want to do, violating God's commands, and it puts us all under Judgment of God. I mentioned Harold wasn't a nice guy. And he, he slaughtered all those babies in Jerusalem. After the wise men left, all male children two and under. As a matter of fact, historians tell us that Augustus in Rome said, it's safer to be Herod the great sow than it is his son because he was half Jewish. He didn't eat meat. It's better to be Herod's sow than Herod's son because Herod didn't eat pork. You see, what's going on there is Herod understood something that I think many don't understand today. And, and what Herod, Herod got was that there can only be one person in charge. That's why he put to death people in his family. Because anybody who was a threat to him, he would kill because he understood, hey, there can only be one person in charge. And that's why when he heard about the coming king, he reacted the way he would. Notice, they, the wise men could have come and said, hey, where's the one who's been born? The Lamb of God, the sacrifice of God. And probably Herod would have liked that because probably Herod had some guilt issues for all the people in his family that he had killed among other people. That's not what they said. They said, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And really the question for us today, and the question that we are focusing on at this Christmas time, one aspect of this is, is where are we in that? What does the coming of the one true king mean to us? 
Because what Herod understood and what we often miss is the coming of the king meant the coming of the one who truly is in authority over our lives. And, and what that means to us is something that I think a lot of people in our day miss. And that's this. Herod, Herod understood this. But I think many of us have missed this. One true king means that we can't just simply add or sprinkle in a little Jesus into our lives. I think a lot of people, Herod got that. I think a lot of people today don't get that. If Jesus truly is the one true king, and he is, then we, it, we can't just add a little Jesus to our lives because that's not what the one, he's in authority. If we're recognizing his authority, it just doesn't work that way. We can't just be okay with God and be okay with Jesus and sprinkle in a little Jesus and go on and live our life the way we want to live our life. That's really not what Christianity is. If you try to do that, you're going to miss, you're going to miss the greatest gift of a king. That whole king claim, the whole king issue in Jesus' life, it was with him throughout his ministry. We could fast forward from his birth to 33 years later. He's standing before Pilate, and Pilate's asking him, is it true? Are you the king of the Jews? And he's saying, it's, it's as you say. And then if you'll remember, as Pilate is manipulated by the religious crowd into crucifying Jesus, which he does. He condemns him to crucifixion. And then he decides he's going to have a, a sign made king of the Jews. And the chief priests and the other people, uh, the scribes and the teachers of the law, they object to Pilate saying, no, don't say he's the king of the Jews. Just say that he claimed to be the king of the Jews if you're going to put a sign like that. In. But we know from history as as the life drained out of Jesus when he was hanging on the cross of Calvary outside the walls of Jerusalem, that the sign did indeed above his head, nailed to the top of the cross, said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And the sign was right. But he's not only their king, he's our king. And the question is, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to respond to God? Because Jesus came for two reasons. The first coming is to create an access to God. To make a way, a path, a road. That's what the word meant that in Isaiah. It meant that way, the way, make the way or the highway of God. They use both that words. Well, they use those same words in the New Testament. And that's when Jesus is saying, I am the way. I am the path. I am the road. I am the way to have access to God. And that brings us to, to what we call the good news, or we're also called the gospel. That this is the whole point of everything that's written in the Bible. It's the greatest story playing out through the pages of Scripture that God's created all of us. He's given us a free will. He's given us a choice whether we want to be with God or not, whether we want to worship Him, want to love Him back or not. But because we've all sinned, we've all used that freedom to rebel against God. Every one of us have. We've all violated God's commands in one way or another. 
And then what that means is eventually we all deserve as rebels to be put down, to be taken care of, for justice to come, which is not good news for us. But he came the first time to grant access, to make a way. And here's what that means to us today. And, and please don't miss this most important application to your life. That means as you're sitting here today, Christmas time, 2014, December, you have a decision to make with your will. Whether you will humble yourselves under the true king or not. And we all deserve punishment for our rebellion, but, but Jesus made a way for us to be forgiven. And it's he's the way. You see, Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, the only one that didn't deserve to be punished for his sin. He lived a perfect life and then voluntarily allowed himself to be crucified on the cross in order to pay for our personal sins. Kevin's personal sins Christ paid for on the cross of Calvary. And the way I get that accredited to my benefit, the way you can benefit to that, the way you can use that as access to God is simply by placing your faith or belief or trust in Jesus and Jesus alone and what he did on Calvary. When we place our faith, our trust in Christ, you know, that comes with some things. You know, we humble ourselves. We recognize who God is and who Jesus was as our true king. We ask him for forgiveness knowing the only way that's even possible for us to be forgiven is that Jesus paid our penalty. Justice is preserved. And when we come to God like that, he'll, he'll forgive us and he'll come into our life. But here's how you know whether you really understand that or not. If you're sitting here today and your Christianity pretty much amounts to a little bit of Jesus sprinkled into your life. You're okay with Jesus. You're okay with God. Got that sprinkled in. But you kind of live your own life your way. You're probably not really understanding what Christianity is all about. But if you're here today and you've made a decision to trust Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, realizing there's no good thing that earns you favor with God. There's nothing you could do. There's no good deed that erases your sins. There's no religious ritual that makes you right with God. None. No, not baptism, which we saw those images. And, and that's, that's a step of obedience. But that doesn't take away any sins. Not church membership. Not, you know, all these people join Grace Community Church. That does not help you with God. One thing, placing your faith or your trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. And you can tell if that really is real in your life. If you acknowledge God as your king. And he's not just an add-on to your life. But your life, he's central to your life. And you want, you have a desire to, 
to know him and follow him just out of gratitude for what he's done for you. That doesn't earn your salvation either. It's just a, a true response, a sincere response of the love and what God's done for us in allowing his one and only son to die to pay for our sins. Just gratitude. It's just loving him back. So where are you? Most important decision you'll ever make. I know some of you are here, maybe you've been invited or you just kind of came in to see what was going on and things are getting a little personal right now. I don't want you to feel manipulated. I don't want you to feel like I'm pressuring you. But I want you to, to realize that there's an opportunity you have right now to respond to the God of the universe and his love for you personally. He created you. He knows everything about you. He loves you. And you're here for a reason. And if you don't know where you stand with God, if you don't know if you fall into the category of maybe I've just sprinkled a little Jesus into my life to feel good about it, but I'm really in control, or you're really striving to follow God with your life, that's the difference which none of us do perfectly. If you're not sure, I'd like to lead you in a prayer of repentance. That means you're sorry for your rebellion against God and, and you want to follow him with your life. And that starts with faith, with trusting God for the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And if you don't, if you don't know where you stand, but you're willing to make Jesus the king, the authority in your life, then just make this prayer your prayer. I'd like everyone to bow our heads. And, uh, and again, God knows your every thoughts. God knows every thought you've ever had. He knows you completely. He's numbered the head, the hairs on your head. He, he knows everything about you. And, and if you just kind of put this prayer in, into your own words, if you want, and just silently express that to God, that will indicate that you are truly a believer. Or maybe you're ready to trust him for the first time. It's just a prayer like this. Again, make this prayer intensely personal in your heart to God. Make, make it your prayer. Something like this right now as our heads are bowed. Father in heaven, God, I recognize that I have rebelled against you in my sin, whether I, I know it or not. And probably way more than I realize. I violated your commands. And God, I'm, I'm understanding that you're offering me forgiveness through one path, one way. And that's through your son Jesus and what he did on the cross at Calvary. That he died to pay for my personal sins. And God, first of all, I thank you for that. And I'm asking you for the forgiveness that you're offering and God, I also want you to come into my life and help me to follow you. Help me to, to, to submit my life to love you back. God, thank you for loving me at great cost. Thank you for being a loving, true, righteous king, my king. In Christ's name, amen.